0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tantum, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest's name is Kathy Demers. I was super excited to have Kathy on the show because... Kathy took her company public, and she was willing to share with us the entire journey. She started her career at IBM and Microsoft, and then back as the internet was really coming around, her and her business partner came up with this idea about how to create a gateway software that was able to take the internal private email of businesses and then connect them to the World Wide Web. So Kathy and her partner took $10,000, bought a computer, and then took this to market, after getting some gold-plated clients, they were able to build some reoccurring revenue to attract an angel investor whose sole focus was to bring the company public. They eventually went public for $20 million, and Kathy's willing to share with us the entire ins and outs of the challenges that she had as she was going public, and then how exiting a public company is actually potentially more difficult than it is taking it public because of all the compliance and the intricacies of having everything you do in the limelight and being public. Kathy gives a very, very great picture of how she transitioned into a life after and started to find her new mission and purpose to help business owners and help people find their why. Kathy is extremely involved in Forbes as a Forbes Council of Coaches. She is in Women's President Organization, Wired Women, and Novice to Advanced Marketing Systems, just to name a couple of them. And she also owns a company currently called BusinessSuccess.com, where she's done over 200 interviews. And it's a 20 minute nice little coffee break for business owners who are looking for some advice. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Kathy. She did a fantastic job explaining her journey. So without further ado, here's the interview with Kathy. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Value Advantage. The Value Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Good afternoon, Kathy, how you doing?
1: I'm doing terrific, terrific, Ryan. Thank you for um, this opportunity, I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to to your story because I think it's a very good one and I got introduced to you through... uh, Chris Yates and the Rhodium community. And I think we've had quite a few of them on here. And we've got a really interesting story that I think you're able to share with us because a lot of our listeners are, do not have a lot of exposure into the IPO world. But before we really dive into that, can you go back and for a listener's sake, explain to us the day that you decided to be an entrepreneur and then how did that unfold?
1: Oh, wow. I I remember the day quite clearly it, it, it was a day I had uh, worked for a long time as you know Ryan for Microsoft and then I went on to work for IBM and while I was with both of those organizations it was highly entrepreneurial uh, at Microsoft I was their second employee in Western Canada we didn't even have an office I was working on the coffee table my uh, manager who managed Western Canada and it was kind of funny because I had to make sure that he was out of the shower ready to go before I went into his home to work but it was <laughs> it was wonderful it was so entrepreneurial i loved it and even within ibm i found myself gravitating towards entrepreneurial pursuits i got internal funding for a large multimedia center and you know we basically built that from the ground up within this larger organization so it became really obvious to me that i was a dyed in the wool entrepreneur and i really needed to do that so the day that i started this business that I eventually listed on the stock exchange uh, was very momentous. And I remember talking to my business partner and uh, he had an opportunity, an idea. I'll spare you the technical details. He was the geek of the outfit, Ryan. Now, in my world, geek is a term of endearment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, because we both have got the IT background too. So I, like, we'll spare all of the listeners, the uh, some of the technical stuff. But I think kind of explain a little bit about it because it's some pretty cool stuff that you guys were doing.
1: Yeah. Well, we, um, you know, without without getting into, I mean, I'm a marketer, not so much on the technical side. I can figure out how to push a few buttons. But my business partner, who was the technical brains of the outfit, had this idea. And I'll just give you a real brief explanation for it. And at the time, it was very difficult for companies, large organizations with distributed offices worldwide to connect their internal email systems to the internet. It was difficult and it was expensive. And so he came up with this strategy of basically backhauling all of that work into a Central location required a very expensive computer. And I went, wow, you know, this sounds like there's a real opportunity here. I'll go and talk to a few people who might purchase it. And if it looks like it has legs, I'm in. And I went and talked to half a dozen potential clients, which is the way you're supposed to do this, right? Talked to half a dozen clients, and they said, without exception, if you build this thing, we will buy it. So I went back to my business partner and I said, that's it. Let's do it. And we scraped together. Ten thousand dollars, which was all we had at the time, and he spent it on a single computer, all of it, the entire ten thousand. They were a lot more expensive back then, but we needed, you know, something really powerful. And then we were broke. Hmm. Not an auspicious start, (laughs) right? Now what? Uh, So we had, you know, a few clients lined up, but our it was a recurring revenue model, relatively small monthly billing that we were hoping to build over time, and. When you're in the high-tech business, you know this, Ryan, I'm sure, you need to grow very quickly. And it's very difficult to do that without financing. And also, one of the things you come up with pretty quickly is the landscape changes very fast. I mean, you have to be light on your feet. And we were in some ways just slightly ahead of our time which is not a good place to be if you don't have enough money to grow quickly. And so basically, that's when we started going out and looking for financing. So I did a a few rounds of private financing and the exit strategy for those people who were helping to finance the company and eventually for ourselves too was an IPO. So that's how that came about.
0: I love it. There's so many different uh, dovetails that I want to go into. So let's start with... Um, kind of at the beginning where you're this recurring revenue model that you're referring to, because when you, so you bought the $10,000 computer, you, when you scraped all the, all the money together, what was the business plan? Like, how did you project out what you guys wanted to accomplish? Did you fall into recurring revenue model or was it specific and intentional?
1: It was very specific and very intentional. Uh, both my business partner and I had been, you know, quite successful working in other organizations or doing consulting, and that's a pretty tough way to grow a business, especially if you want to exit at some point, right? Separate the business from yourself. So, right from the get-go, right from right from the very day we opened our doors, it was based on a monthly recurring. Um, monthly recurring billing. And I remember our very first client, uh, when I quoted him the monthly price for the number of users that he had, uh, he said, can, can I pay for a whole year up front? So I went, and inside I went, oh, I, I don't know how we're going to do that. But to him, I went, absolutely.
0: I will go find a place you can wire the money.
1: <laughs> yes. And so when we started to scan around for potential partners and investors, we had a revenue stream already set up it wasn't huge uh, but we had some gold-plated clients as far as the recognizable customer names and they could see our revenue each and every month so we knew how much money we had coming in this month we knew the next month it was going to be similar now if we didn't build we might have had a few customers leave obviously but it's very easy when you do that especially for an investor, it's very easy for them to project out. Um, And if we had more money to do more, um, you know, offer more services and to do more marketing and bring in a sales team, then it was a relatively, you know, a a curved line, um, like a hockey stick uh, in projecting our revenues out. And from an investor's perspective, you know, the proof was already there people were already paying monthly and it was just a matter of growing those numbers.
0: So what were you billing the monthly uh, services to? So were you selling hardware? Were you selling s- like monitoring services or exactly what was the, the, the services that they were paying monthly for?
1: Well, the equivalent in today's world in today's language, which would be, it was like um uh, software as a service. And so Again, without getting into all the technical details and going down rabbit holes here, basically what we did was we provided an off-site gateway that would translate their internal email, which was in a proprietary system, to internet email. So we were the gateway for that. And we had all of the technical requirements to get the email from their internal systems out to the internet and from the internet back into their internal systems. But we ran it all centrally. And we charged them a monthly fee per email user, so per email address, so a relatively small fee if it was a small law firm with 20 employees and a larger monthly fee if it was a large organization such as InterWest that has ski resorts all over the world, then we would charge them a larger monthly fee. They loved it because it meant they didn't have to handle any of that complexity, any of the technology, it just worked. And we just bought bigger and bigger servers.
0: So, were you that you wouldn't have to sell them boxes or anything like that? It, was it just the was it software that was that you're putting on that gateway, or was it actually equipment that you were financing? How I'm just kind of curious how. You no, struct- it was
1: software. It was software on the gateway. So all we had to do was set them up, uh, set up their access in the gateway, and we charged them a one time setup fee for that, and then they just became you know one of the services on that gateway.
0: Yep. I, I love it. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, you, you are way ahead of your time on the, the reoccurring software as a service and everybody's, you know, everybody's doing that today. Everybody's got monthly mm-hmm. subscriptions that they're probably mm-hmm. <laughs> sick of. But, you know, it, did you have any challenges trying to sell it like that?
1: Um, not so much with the customers uh, you know they they loved it and they loved it because it it was a dramatic reduction in their costs and we could spread our costs out across many customers and so it worked quite well for them where we didn't run into challenges uh, at that time was when we wanted to add other components other services that required uh, our suppliers to get on board with monthly recurring uh, billing mm-hmm. You know, they're like, we don't do that. We sell software in a box. That's- <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you want 100 users, you got to buy 100 boxes. And we're like, oh, this is a bit of a challenge. So as I said, it's challenging to be just slightly ahead of your time, uh, especially if you don't have, you know, the financial legs underneath you to support you. Uh, but once we got going on this, it was uh, – there were a lot of people trying to figure out what we were tra- – how we, how we were doing what we were doing.
0: So, so. when did you – Start to feel the, the the squeeze for the lack of capital. I mean, because you know the beauty of monthly recurring, like you had said, is you're building this cash flow platform. You know, what were some like? How long into the business did you start to feel the squeeze, and what was it that you were trying to accomplish that you knew that you needed to uh, to go out and look for outside sources?
1: We started to feel it almost immediately because, as I said, my partner bought one computer, but obviously we needed business computers, Mm -hmm. you know, but we also needed backup systems. And one of the things that we needed to do was to have a uh, completely off-site backup to protect our business and to protect our, our clients' services that we were offering them. And so, you know, one of the things we did was we parked a server at IBM on the other side of the country and they charge us monthly for that so that worked out well but we we did we felt it immediately the other thing we needed to be able to do was marketing and sales it nothing in this world is it, if you build it they will come
0: <laughs> isn't that the truth nothing
1: and so that costs money and that takes staff and so we we felt the cash crunch pretty much immediately
0: did you know going into this that you, you were going to need to look for capital right away
1: yes We did. But we also knew that it was going to be much easier to raise capital and we were going to have to pay a much lower price for that capital in terms of share of the company or whatever it is if we had a proven recurring revenue model. So we wanted to build that first.
0: I love it because, I mean, it's building it to sell it, but then it's also building it to get investors, which you have to go through the entire kind of valuation, which I want to kind of dive into. But mm. you know, so let's kind of take this in steps. So if you, you know, as you're going out and now you've got something that you feel confident that you can take to investors, did you have, you know, what kind of investors were you looking for? where is it angel investors, private investors, VC funds? Like what? Where did you go with this intention? Because you, mm. you had a lot of intention. Where did you just start, start to explore?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And I think I have an interesting answer that some people might not have thought of. And I didn't have a lot of, I mean, I handled the business side of the business, the finance, the admin, the sales, the marketing. My business partner handled all the technical pieces, all the techies, techie again, the term of endearment, but <laughs> I don't get them. I don't get them. They don't get me, you know, so we kept, that, <laughs> kept those parts of the business quite separate, which was great. Uh, but what happened was we, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience in dealing with angel investors or dealing with underwriters or dealing with brokerage firms. I just didn't, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my partner and I had this saying, and that is that when you're swimming with sharks, we were getting into the water, right? When you're swimming with sharks, bring a shark with you. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we sold a large chunk of the company to one angel investor who had a very specific job, and his job was – to finance the company. His, his job was to find financers and put us on that path to being public and raise more money. So he was very well connected. Now the good news was he didn't understand much about the technology we were dealing with. He didn't understand that much about what we were trying to accomplish as a business. And I kind of liked that.
0: How do you, honestly. Okay, well, that's crazy. Right. So how did you find him? And then how did, he, why was he comfortable with the fact that he didn't know much about the business?
1: Well, interesting. He, could, he, he looked at the numbers. He could see where we were going. He could see that there was a market opportunity for certain. But also, as I mentioned, we got busy building proof of the recurring revenue stream, and we did it with gold-plated clientele. So, And by that, I mean highly recognized names. And so when he saw our list of customers and our recurring revenue, basically that was all he needed to know. He didn't need to understand why they were buying what they bought. I mean, he understood it in general terms. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know enough about it to be able to drive the technical direction of the company or, quite honestly, interfere with the technical direction of Mm -hmm. the company. So, you know, we told him very often when we first brought him in is that you've spent a lot of money to buy yourself a job. Mm -hmm. And he would laugh. But that was, you know, that was the setup. He was the one who was to to bring us to the next steps in our financing. How did we find him? We started talking to a couple of our lawyers um asking them for recommendations, asking them for a strategy, and you know that's eventually how we came
0: to know him so w- was it, what was his background I'm just curious was because was it private money was it he did he make it somewhere else was he in the business of doing that and raising capital yes okay yeah
1: that was his business right um was he was an angel investor, and some of his you know properties eventually went public and some didn't right mm-hmm. some were privately but yes, he was he was looking for his next ten bagger
0: as got they it. like. So, yeah. hopefully, you being that one. So let's ah. see, let's go into how did how did you? Because I've had this conversation with a couple other people on the show, and the difference between evaluation of a twenty year business that's got um, you know consistent three percent growth in EBITDA and customer, that's way different than valuing a startup. So, how did you guys go about? Or maybe you re, maybe you'll say the recurring revenue did it, but how did you guys go about valuing the business for this individual and then understanding exactly how much to give him?
1: Oh well, that you know that's always a guessing game, and it's very easy in hindsight to go back and say, "Well, we gave away too much." I think you know that's what a lot of us feel. There's a little bit of um, seller's remorse, if you will, but. Taking a look at it, I mean, we really needed his his skills, his expertise, and we needed him fully invested in the company to get us to that next level. Uh, so we were so young in the company, but, you know, given that we hadn't invested that much cash ourselves, you know, we needed to take that into account. There, there was no science to it, I will tell you, Ryan. Um, we just negotiated a number that both of us could live with.
0: Isn't that crazy? So, like… Did you help have help with that negotiation? Because I I've I've heard that story, you know, from a lot of people that are in the the startup world. And it is, I mean, it just kind of comes down to negotiation and percentages, mm-hmm. what you're comfortable with, huh?
1: Yeah, it comes it, it comes under what you're comfortable with and the value of what you're getting. So with my partner and I, we didn't have the ability, I mean, we were a fish out of water. Right? Mm-hmm. And going and working with these angel investors and getting underwriters and dealing with all of the legal paperwork and everything. I mean, we really and everything that needed to be set up to go public. So we couldn't have done it without someone like that investor.
0: Did you put any like benchmarks or like KPIs in for him that he needed to hit in order to vest or anything?
1: Well, those in, in this particular case, those key performance indicators would have meant that he had an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. Right? He was not interested in leaving his money to sit there while we slowly built the company either. Yep.
0: Okay. Right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he
1: was smart. He was smart enough to understand that we had a very small window. We needed to move fast.
0: What was that yeah. time frame in the window?
1: Oh, yeah, 12 months. Holy cow. You know, it, I mean, not to go public, right? It took mm-hmm. longer than that. Um, but in 12 months, we needed to grow the business Quickly enough, so that you know there was we were positioned in order to take the next step, which was the IPO, and and, and it is primarily because of the speed at which the technology and the marketplace was changing.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, because I mean, at that point, I mean, you get a big IBM or anybody else that can reverse engineer it, and you're immediately competing with their funds and their resources.
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, IBM approached us about that, um, and you know they were they were actually looking to get us to help them build a similar system. And what I ended up doing, cause that's sort of my skill is I ended up basically we, they were subbing out all their business to us. So I had IBM selling on our behalf.
0: Got it. That
1: so, helped as well.
0: Yeah. I love it. So look, if we can go back to, you know, let, after you get this, uh, angel investor on board with you, what is, You know, you don't have to disclose anything that you don't feel comfortable with, Mm -hmm. but like size of employees or, you know, what was the growth rate in those 12 months? And how did you deploy the capital to to hit some of the numbers that you wanted to?
1: Well, it was interesting because a good part of that capital actually went to the IPO process. It's expensive.
0: Holy cow, really?
1: (laughs) It is really expensive. Uh, We took the remainder. I'm not going to say the majority of it, but a good chunk of it. Uh, Going public is a very very expensive process. And so the rest of it, I mean, we took and we hired salespeople, uh, trained them up. We hired some salespeople in both Canada and the United States, even though we were, we were officed in Canada uh, and building out the technology quickly. So, So you know, I can't get into more specifics than that, but it was, it was crazy fast growth. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's, yeah, that's, that is a lot of growth. So you hit the 12 months and then did you have, so from the twi- that that first year of growth, what was the actual date of the IPO? And if we can kind of go back in there and say, what, what else, what were some of the other major milestones that you were working towards once you hit that, that the numbers you felt comfortable with?
1: As far as the IPO goes.
0: So, yeah, you got that whole year where you had the crazy fast mm-hmm. growth. What was kind of the next stage before you actually did the IPO? Was there other benchmarks or other things that you needed to do in order to qualify for the IPO?
1: Um, yes. Um, and again, it's going, to de- it's going to depend a little bit on the strategy and things have probably changed. But you have to have a specific number of investors in your company before you can list. Hmm. And so I think at the time it was 500 I can't remember the specifics, but I think we had to have 500 investors, and so I, you know it's interesting because you don't want to pre-dilute the company. I'm getting into some specifics here.
0: No, I you don't wanted, want to dilute the company. Yeah, the you don't want
1: to. You don't want to pre-dilute the company prior to going public. And yet, on the other hand, you, know, you have to have enough investors so that you're on the path to, to doing the filing. So, as you can see, Ryan, as the CEO of a company on a path to an IPO, there are a lot of distractions beyond growing the company.
0: Well, yeah, like almost all of them.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. Much. I will tell you something else um, that I learned uh, that surprised me, and this might be interesting to people who have, you know, considered this path, and that is that what I hadn't anticipate was the stress that would be created by trying to make everyone happy. So, you know, in, in my business now, currently, my job is to do the best job I can and, and make most people happy. But when you're running a publicly traded company, there are so many conflicting interests. And so there's always somebody mad at you. There's always doing a good job. There's always somebody who <laughs> thinks the decision you make are not serving them. Mm-hmm. Okay. It might not be. And the other thing I think about going public. This is this is a nuance that I ha- hadn't recognized. I'd heard about it, but I hadn't recognized it. And that was that when you're the CEO of a of a publicly held company, you have a fiduciary duty, a legal duty, to protect the Best interests of the company. Now, what people think that means is the best interest of the shareholders, but it doesn't. Because what's in the best interest of the company could be very different than what's in the best interests of the shareholders. You can see where the conflicts arise.
0: Oh, yeah. It's, you're like one of those Stretch Armstrong action figures trying to get ripped in both directions.
1: I <laughs> am night staring at the ceiling, wondering what to do. Well, yes. so
0: I know you've got some interesting... Uh, insight on what it's like to go after, but I want to go back and, and as you're kind of going through this process, cause you know, 500 investors is a lot that you have to find. So how did you, what were some of the main things that you had to do prior to going public? If you kind of walk us through that process and maybe even before you do that, I'm just kind of curious, Kathy, why did you guys decide to go public instead of potentially ramping up your infrastructure and technology and selling to IBM instead? So maybe two questions. Let's go into like Mm -hmm. why IPO versus strategic buy, and then we can kind of get into the process.
1: Well, there's two primary reasons why we chose going public and, you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong decision here, but at the time, because it was internet services and the internet was relatively new, it was really difficult for us to raise private financing. You know, based on an exit strategy that would include us selling to someone else at that point, it was challenging. What was the, and, what
0: was the year that this was happening? Uh, it'd
1: be about 12 years ago now. Okay, exactly. But it'd be about 12 years ago now, so quite a while. You know, um, and uh, there's a little recovery period for me afterwards, but. Um, so, so at that point, the exit strategy that was most desirable by the uh, initial investors that we brought in, the seed investors, was an IPO exit strategy, okay. right? Um, and, you know, again, we needed to raise money quickly very, very quickly. And besides it sounded like a great thing to do. I mean, it really did. Right. Um, And in many ways it, it is a great thing to do, but it's, like I said, it's highly risky and it's very stressful, but that, that was the main thing. We didn't see a whole lot of people out there who would potentially stand up to buy an internet company at that
0: point. Got it. Yep. Today.
1: Sure. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what was the, so now that you got the investor in and you're, you're spending a lot of money in that process, you know, Mm-hmm. Where was the money sp- – I mean, I'm assuming the attorney's got a good chunk of that. Oh, it. yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. What were some of the main like key things that you had to do in order to get ready? So 500 investors, what what are some of the other uh, staples that you had to accomplish or the, the rocks?
1: Well, we really had to continue to build our client list. Right. The longer our client list of gold-plated clients, the easier this whole process was going to be. Uh, we needed to build out our sales team. That was really important. But the whole IPO process. I mean, you're right. The lawyers take a, a very large chunk of that. There's a lot of filings that have to be done. You have to have the prospectus written. That's not an easy process. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to. We had to um, have all of our books audited. Right. Bring in a CFO, which we never had before. So yeah. Lots of things.
0: Did you, did you, were there any epiphanies because you, that you had as you were getting it ready for an IPO because you're building it to sell it. And I think a lot of the mm-hmm. challenge that a lot of the private market has is they don't have to have that kind of pressure. So that as you're writing the prospectus and building all these, you know, the sales team, the client list, all these different things, you're building value for the, uh, the, the actual public offering. Was there anything yes. that you... Kind of the had an aha for like oh I didn't realize that we had to do this to actually make a valuable company
1: um, we had to do this to make a valuable company i don't I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head right I mean certainly the accounting overhead mm-hmm. was bigger than I thought it should be, um, but it was all necessary for that iPO process, so you know that was one thing the account just just the accounting overhead and the legal overhead um, that could have been all stripped away if we were not on an IPO path, yeah, right? Yeah. Which would have left more profit. I think you know that's an important thing. Um, but also, and, and this became you know we sort of had inklings of this as we were going through the IPO process. But it certainly this chicken came home to roost not, not too long after we went public. And that is this saying, right? He who has the most money wins, <laughs> hands down, every time. So, while my business partner and I held a majority of the stock, right, you would think that that would give us the level of control and comfort that we needed, but we didn't have the most money so you know without getting into a bunch of stories and everything I you want to know, hear you it, one so I know. <laughs> there's
0: one that you've get, like explain one scenario you don't have to name any names or any of that you know details that are uncomfortable, but what is the like you you're thinking i'm sure you've got one in your head where What kind of scenario is it that happens where that really, really comes to fruition?
1: Well, with a publicly traded company, uh, you know, the president and the CEO has has a lot of control over the day-to-day function of the business, but it is the board of directors that run the company. Right. And so when you have people who are on the board of directors who have got a lot of financial wherewithal and a lot of financial clout, they can very quickly uh, determine the flavor, if you will, and the direction of the board. Am I kind of maybe you can hear what I'm sort of not saying here? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: no, no, I get it. Um, Because you got the board of directors, then you got your investors, all of them, and then you got your company. I mean, that's that's a challenging dynamic to to Mm -hmm. dance in.
1: It is a challenging dynamic it is, and like I said it was it was I was ill prepared for that. I will tell you I was ill because in my world uh, we build a product, we improve it, we make it the best we can we sell it, we make our customers happy if our customers aren't happy, we bend over backwards to make them happy you know we hire great employees, we do what we can to motivate and inspire them and make them happy. But when you're dealing with public and trade a publicly traded company, there are so many conflicting interests. We, you just have to figure out how to let some of that go and, and grow a very thick skin very quickly.
0: I mean, how, what, did you, what kind of resources or who did you go to as you're learning the stuff that you said you were ill prepared for?
1: Uh, Well, in our particular case, we were very lucky because we had corporate legal counsel who was very, very skilled at the IPO process uh, and, you know, really took us under their wings and went, you know, we're not going to let you fail. We're not going to let you fail here. And there were a, a few times when so a few shortcuts were suggested, a few things that would have been less expensive for us. And our lawyers just basically put their foot down and said, you know what? you're not going that path, you'll get hurt in the long run. Uh, So I think, you know, that was one of the things that was really important. So the initial investors whose job it was to help us raise more money to go public and get those 500 shareholders in place, right, uh, was all very important. And then really, really, really strong legal counsel.
0: So what happened? So after you rang that bell, you know, what Mm. what were your emotions as you were going through that?
1: Oh, that, that's an interesting, an interesting question. Um, at the time, this is going to sound kind of awful, but my father was dying of cancer. And he oh, no. was actually in ICU uh, at the time, so I'm trying to deal with taking this company through an IPO and and, and that as well. And he was in ICU. <laughs> we rang the bell, so we rang the bell in the morning. I'm on the West Coast, so it was like 6 a.m. and immediately just dashed off to the hospital. Oh. Uh, life life kind of went on, you know. It was a very a short-lived celebration, but it was a celebration. It was it was fantastic, and. It was it was kind of one of those where you hope everything goes well from here on in, um, but no matter what, you've arrived. You know, you've completed what many people try and, and had never had not succeeded at. So, it was a real huge badge of honor,
0: for did sure. Do you feel some sort of closure?
1: Yes and no, you know, because now we're publicly listed, but I also knew um, now we were public. And, and you've got to think about it. The word public means… You're public. Everything mm-hmm. you do is public. And that, what I, I found that rather disconcerting, quite honestly. So so it was mixed emotions. It was, yay, we've done that. You know, it's completed. Uh, no one can say we didn't go public. Now what we have to do is make sure we're not delisted by two o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: So, how so your, it
1: was just from one thing to you know, one emotion. gears, to the next. totally. Mm, yeah. Yeah.
0: So how did, what were, what was, the day to day, like now that you were public, did your duties change? Did your role change unexpectedly? And then, how long did you stay a part of the the, the operations?
1: Um, the duties changed quite significantly uh, through the OP- IPO process and after that, because you know, a big part of my job was. You know, handling public perception, making sure that we were, um, you know, disclosing information in a timely manner. Uh, you know, when we needed to, what we needed to disclose. I mean, it's not these these choices were not mine anymore. Again, we had this duty, um, and so that changed things a lot. And it was interesting, also Ryan, because I felt the responsibility of being a CEO of a publicly traded company very deeply. Not everyone shared that sense of responsibility, so sometimes I had employees that had kind of gone. A little bit you know offside and i'd have to have a discussion with them and say hey you know we're probably i'll give you an example there's a funny example april april Fool's day oh uh geez. some of uh, yeah <laughs> so a couple of our technicians decided they were going to mess with our website and they put up a fake website you know because they could do it so they just literally switched out our website with something that was totally funny and fake
0: oh my <laughs> like,
1: gosh. i'm like you guys Come into my office. We have to talk, right? Yeah. We are a publicly traded company. We cannot do things like this. So that's just a funny example. There were some that were a little bit more extreme. But yeah, it, it, it changed. It changed quite significantly.
0: Did your culture change along with that?
1: Not so much. You know, I think, I think at the top, it certainly did. It had to. We needed to grow up. Uh, Be serious pretty quickly. Uh, And we were dealing with people's money and a lot of our friends and family were invested in our company. And, you know, so we took that seriously. But still on a day to day when you when you run a high tech business, uh, people need to have fun doing what they're doing
0: you know, Mm -hmm. and,
1: and, and it was an exciting time and the excitement was infectious. So,
0: yeah. Did you get the money that you needed to after you? So like, what were, what are some of the financial benchmarks that are now uh, public that you can disclose? I mean, how fast did you raise the money and did it, was it enough to accomplish the vision that you and your partner originally sought after?
1: Mm, You bring up another interesting question. I don't mean to seem coy, right? But I also, I also want to explain this in a way that would be a most help uh to people Mm -hmm. and um one of the things this was a surprise to me again one of the things in in going public i mean we got you know a good chunk of cash and when you have people who are involved in uh what's the word i'm looking for you know they're they're basically involved in raising raising capital for private companies or for publicly traded companies they get paid when you raise money Uh, and so if you're well cashed up then they're not really seeing an opportunity. And so there was a lot of pressure on myself and the executive team to spend the money that we wanted to um, finance growth over the next two to four years. But they were looking for us to have a much more aggressive plan. Hmm. And so we were at loggerheads for sure. Uh, So yeah, we were cashed up pretty well. Um, But again, that is not always the position that some of the shareholders want you to be in. Right.
0: So, so then and that probably spirals into the, the, what you were saying that the people who have the money win. So mm. were they, were, were these situations driving some of the future vision and future decisions that you felt no longer, you had complete control over?
1: It was time for me to leave. Let me put it that
0: way. How long did you, how's uh, that? <laughs> yeah, No, I, I get it. I, I couldn't. Imagine. It was time well, to go. I, it's interesting because I mean, you, yeah. you've gone through, I mean, you're one of the Uh, first people we've talked to that have uh, gone public and Mm -hmm. the, it's the biggest challenge a lot of people that sell their companies have is the earn out, which in, you know, when privately held companies buy other privately held companies, it's like a, it's a long drawn out compensation that's tied to, Mm -hmm. so you're no longer the boss and you went from being one of the bosses to literally having thousands of bosses, a board of directors (laughs) and a bunch of different stuff. So I couldn't imagine how your entrepreneurship perception changed.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it was still very entrepreneurial, but it—but I was no longer. Uh, there were just a lot of other people, and and, and they're very legitimate desires. I'm not belittling mm-hmm. it by any way, Very legitimate desires to take into account, and you know, you know, I had said when you when you're swimming with sharks, take a shark with you. Well, here's another along the same metaphor: is that you know, it it became a bit of a feeding frenzy, uh, in the publicly traded markets, and our company was not. Immune to that, uh, and so the other saying is that when there's blood in the water, get out of the water. Mm-hmm. You know. Cool. So was it, there it, anything it was-
0: specific that triggered you to really be done? I mean, was it was it an, an interaction or was it just kind of an ongoing thing?
1: Um, you know, it happened over time. It wasn't an ongoing thing, but it did happen over time that, you know, we were, you know, I was in particular at loggerheads with the direction that the company should take and the way that we should spend the money that we had raised. I mean, there was some specific specific disagreements about that. Um, and, yeah, so it was, and, you know, at some point, and this is true for any uh, CEO, whether it's a private company or public company, at some point you've got to go, is is my staying here good Company? Um, mm. Is it time to put the company in different hands, different steerage? if you will. And it was not an easy decision for my business partner and I to make. And We both exited at the same time. But yeah, it was it was definitely the right move. Uh, it, and the company was eventually sold to another publicly traded company and then it was taken private. So, you know, it's gone through a couple of iterations. It didn't implode after we left, you know, which is good. Didn't yeah, it's it.
0: really good because, I mean, you built something that was sustainable. Yeah. So... so- I, I want Go to mention ahead.
1: something else about that though that um that I wasn't aware of with a with a publicly traded company is that you know you own a stock and, and generally there's different you know types of shares and that type of thing, but exiting a publicly traded company uh is a very challenging thing to do. I wasn't aware of that. We hadn't thought that far ahead, quite honestly. Uh and it was in many ways as difficult as building the company was to begin with. And most people think when you're a publicly traded company, I mean, it's just a matter of selling your shares. You just sell your shares to somebody and you're out. It's not
0: that simple. So what are some of the things that that was actually the question I was going to ask is literally financially, how did you divest or did you leave the money there? Or so like, how was it structured? You know, hmm. how how was your investment structured? Was it, what were, were there stipulations and when and how you could literally sell the the stock and kind of walk us well, through that?
1: So it gets rather complex, okay, with the different share structures and um, different maturity on the options and things like that. And we had also gotten some shares in lieu of some of the time we had spent building the company that we didn't receive a salary. So it's kind of complicated. Um, but basically, when you're trying to exit a publicly traded company, I mean, you can't just sell your stock onto the market because you know what happens when you do that. Mm-hmm. You drop the, the value of the stock, Everybody gets hurt, in, including me. So when the president and CEO of the company starts selling her shares, that has to be publicly disclosed, right? Yep. So it's like uh, that's not going to work very well. It's just not. And again, we're just like, uh oh. So now what? And you know, basically, it required us to to find investors. Who were, who were going to pick up our stock, negotiate a specific price, halt the stock from trading on the exchange until the – and, and we, obviously we had to get the Securities Commission to approve all of this beforehand uh, and halt the stock, transfer the shares, and then start the stock trading again the moment a press release was issued saying that we had resigned. So, uh, you know, it was all very, very coordinated. But the problem is – and this was a big challenge for me – is that you know, we needed to do it legally on the up and up, which we did, but we also couldn't discuss it with a lot of people because we were a publicly traded company,
0: Yeah, right? crazy. Yep.
1: which meant that my staff, who had stuck by me from the very beginning, didn't know a single thing about what was going on until the stock was halted. My partner and I walked into the boardroom, saw all our staff there, and announced that we had resigned. That's One of the worst days of my life, I will tell you that. How come? Because the sense of betrayal in the room was unbelievable because they never saw it coming. And, you know, they couldn't. That was part of my responsibility as the CEO of a publicly traded company, right, is to, to you know, make sure that information is released um, at a, um, a time that serves all of the shareholders. You know, there needs to be a fair, fair playing field. So,
0: Did you feel the same way walking in there? Did you feel guilt? Like you were gonna be betraying them?
1: Yes, and I knew I wasn't. I knew I wasn't, but I knew that I couldn't explain to them the situation either. I you know, it's like, well I mean, we could explain to them afterwards, it's like we couldn't disclose what was going on until mm-hmm. the stock was halted. So right? how did to you, protect all the shareholders. So
0: how did you overcome the the feeling that these that the people had?
1: Um, I think you know, just a matter of waiting for the shock to wear off, and that they they knew, um, you know, that my heart was in the right place, right? right. That they knew that I was just handling handling very carefully my responsibility to the people who had invested in our company.
0: It's interesting because that experience in the private world, it's up to the discretion of the business owner, and you hear some horror stories about how they tell <laughs> people before they shouldn't. Or I mean, it, you, there's a lot of you know, gray area in when and how to tell employees and all that stuff. I mean, did you feel a little bit of assurance in the fact that there was like specific rules and a game plan of how you had to handle it?
1: Um, Yes, it was really helpful. The challenge is you need to understand – what they are right <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. it was really 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 easy to, to to make a misstep and not even know you had done that um so the only solution to that is to basically keep your securities lawyer in your pocket keep them on speed dial mm-hmm. you know and check everything with him <laughs> before you do anything because it, it, it's it's a minefield and not only would it hurt me uh, had I, you know, just even inadvertently done something, but it would have been harmful to the company, to the shareholders, to the staff. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, uh, I felt like I was walking on eggshells a lot. Yeah.
0: Was there a, an opportunity or a thought in your mind to keep your investment there, but just resign? No, it was just, it was totally like one and the same thing.
1: Yes. Um, and, and, you know, not that I didn't think there was a good opportunity in the business, right? Um, but I'm an entrepreneur and, I, you know, I was just not, not going to just retire and hope that my investment in this thing that I had built and, and left was going to be successful. I mean, I really wanted to go and do other things.
0: So, well, yeah. that that's a good segue into life after and so, as we kind of go into what you wanted, what you ended up doing afterwards, did you think about, you know, did you have a plan of what you were going to do afterwards or were you so in the weeds trying to deal with this to not think about that? So, you know, let's take it from that day, you know, forward. How, what was the plan? What were you going to be doing? Mm. And how did you deal with it?
1: Uh, Well, the initial thing was just, j- just to exit, you know I and mean, we honestly didn't look much further than that because that was um a supreme challenge and, and incredibly stressful uh and but once we had accomplished that and it was over and done then my first strategy was honestly to take some time off
0: what would you do uh
1: i i traveled for about 3 years
0: did you really? Wow! Yeah,
1: I did. Yeah, I just took time off, traveled. I, you and I were talking earlier. I love salmon fishing. <laughs> Went camping, fishing. I yeah, I just seriously took some time off. So I didn't have any specific plans to start another business, although I knew I would. Um, but I just really um, needed. I, I just really needed to to recover.
0: Did you have a, you a family at this time?
1: Um. No. No, I was married at the time. Um, no kids or anything like that. And, um, yeah,
0: yeah. So. What, what was the favorite place you went over those three years?
1: Oh, well, I live in British Columbia and we have the most amazing forests and mountains, the Rocky
0: mountains and stuff. So yeah. Favorite place but, is close to home, huh? That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Def- well, and Italy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and okay.
0: Italy. <laughs> so was there, I mean, as you're going through those three years, I'm always curious because it, I, I find it difficult to turn it off. And mm-hmm. I mean, what were you reading? What were you consuming? Like, as far as the material and the things that you're surrounding yourself with, you I mean, were you able to totally shut it off or were you slowly working your mind back into it? I mean, like kind of, yeah, I don't know if that, that and if that question makes sense.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, one of the things that I did, especially after about the first year, you know, the first year was just kind of decompressing from all of that. But then it was really important to me to take a look at my motivations for starting the company and and taking the path of an IPO and, you know, taking all of that on because a certain – well, I mean, at the time, I still think it was the smartest way for us to grow quickly, which is, you know, we had to grow quickly or we couldn't um, execute mm-hmm. our plan at all. But, but I really needed to take a really hard look at, you know, what – bigger picture, what was I trying to accomplish? Because once I got really clear about I mean, it all comes down to mission, right? Mission in life. And I'm an entrepreneur and I just love helping other people be successful. And many of my employees back then are either still working with me in this new iteration of the business or, you know, we've had great relationships. But it was important for me to say, okay, well, once I get clear about my mission, then I can build another company that supports my mission. And It's nice not to have the financial pressures that I did. And so I can build this thing differently. Does it, does it, because I managed to, you know, obviously do some cash up.
0: Yeah. That's uh, uh, the gentleman I interviewed last uh, episode. He actually worded it similar. And he had this uh, Venn diagram he was talking about where you have uh, skill sets, passion, and money, and Uh they all intersect. And he goes, the second act, you don't, it's nice not to have the financial pressure. So you get to. Love mm-hmm. what you do that you're good at. It, and the money is a bonus.
1: Yes. But I think you also get to be more deliberate in how you, and, and how you live each day in the business. You know, I was very clear, Ryan, I was not about to go through a pressure cooker like that again. And it wasn't necessary. I, mean, I worked very, very hard to build the company to where it was. We didn't take any money out of the company for the first eighteen months or so, and even mm-hmm. after that, it wasn't much. Uh, so we sacrificed a lot, uh, and you know, I sacrificed a lot of my sleepless nights and. So getting clear about my my mission and having enough you know cash that I could design this thing in a way that would work for me mm-hmm. and serve more people it, it's it's been a real gift it's it's a luxury a lot of people unfortunately don't have so well and I love the is, fact
0: yeah. that you're doing it very deliberately like you said and I'm I'm really curious on as you've I'm curious on what what is the what is your now your new mission but before you even answer that is how did you what is the things that you did to come to that new conclusion? Was there great resources that you went and explored? Was there people you talked to, but how did you actually go about doing that? And then what is it today?
1: Mm. I took a couple of personal development courses right? Um, they were uh, retreats, workshops, if you will, to get really clear about my, my personal mission. My, this is going to sound kind of woo-woo, but no, it's not. It's perfect. You know, my, my reason for being here on earth. Yeah, I, all, I think all of us have a specific mission. It's up to each of us to uncover it. And for me, it comes down to really being in a place of being what I call a catalyst for for growth, right? A catalyst for growth. And so that means that I have a opportunity, a mission, calling, even a responsibility to create opportunities for people to move forward. And how I do that is in the arena of small business growth. That's where I've chosen. It could be in a number of different places. So I have this this calling, this responsibility Uh, this pleasure to put myself in a place where I can assist people to grow their small businesses now what I've and I discovered that it's really important to me to contribute to the prosperity of the world like that's sort of my place in this fabric if you will and prosperity means more than money Uh, it means a lot of other things in addition to money
0: what does it mean to you
1: I, it means freedom, it means flexibility, it means freedom of choice, it means self-determination. But a lot of those things are really difficult to do without money. So money's in there,
0: for sure. That's, I think you very well said, because it, it is so difficult to have this recalibration after the financial win has been made. I think there's mm-hmm. now this introspective journey that people have to go on. And it's very difficult for a lot of people because you're no longer being measured by balance sheets and quarterly reports. You're having to go, what's it all for?
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, and I think that's the same reason why, you know, they'll they'll tell you stories about when people retire, uh, they die shortly after they get very sick shortly after. And I think it's because those people, um, my guess is they haven't really, because they've been busy with their careers, but they haven't really stepped back and go, why? (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, Why this? And I I believe that business is a game. It's just one of the many games we play as human beings. You know, we play the game of wife, or we play the game of daughter, we play the game of, you know, politician or whatever it happens to be. And it should be fun. It should be games are supposed to be fun right sometimes we win sometimes we lose but unless we have a real strong internal sense of why we're playing the game if the if you know if the if the game is over it's difficult for us to know where to go next and i think that's where
0: so was that those uh those development things that helped you find your why or was there or did it just take time or
1: no no i think um I think any time with anything that we're not really skilled in, and I wasn't really skilled in that, getting help makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Uh,
1: so yeah, these were programs uh, designed for that, and I immersed myself in them. I'm like, okay, I, I want to know, I, I want to make good choices. I have the luxury of time to kind of figure some of this out, and uh, and and I want a strong sense of fulfillment. It doesn't.
0: Right. No, I know it's, it's, it's you know, the fulfillment and enjoying it is what's the whole mm-hmm. point, right? I mean, I, I, I've, I've had conversations with people, they literally just work 60 to 80 hours a week they, they all they do is, I mean, Warren Buffett did it for, you know, 70 years before he started giving back to <laughs> charity nonprofits on mm-hmm. that. All he measured himself was on the, on the valuation. of his net worth? And, you know, you can't take that with you. And I, I'm just, you know, if you've got something and you've, you've said a lot of amazing Gold nuggets here, Kathy, but if there's, you know, with the, with the blessing of hindsight biased and being able to look at this and maybe speaking to someone that's still hasn't had their ability to exit, how do you balance all this? And how would you, how would you go about if you were to go to do it again, interjecting your why into a situation where you've got the business and you're, you're still kind of grinding away like that?
1: Well, so you're asking me what sort of nugget.
0: What's yeah, well, it's you, know, you don't have to come up with advice. anything. Yeah, it, it, and it's like if you were to be talking to yourself when you when you're in the in the thick of it with the IPO, you know, when you're not necessarily as in tune with that why, you know, how mm-hmm. would you have helped yourself figure that out while you're in the middle of all that?
1: I think that um, well, well, I would have invested some time right? I mean, we can always carve out, it's important to carve up some time, uh, invest a little money, get some help or whatever to to figure that out. But I think it's also really important to recognize that you know, if you approach small business as, as a game, there are many different ways and many different types of games that you can play. So continuing the metaphor, it could be uh, baseball, it could be football, it could be hockey, which is a great Canadian sport. Love that. <laughs> um, but so, so you can be that person. You can have that mission, that drive. You can excel in whichever one of those games you choose. The problem becomes when you start to switch games looking for it. And you can't find it. So that comes across as lack of focus, lack of Mm -hmm. tenacity and perseverance. So the trick is, I think, in the game that you have chosen, how do you understand your mission and live it to its fullest within the game and stay focused? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think for a lot of people, you know, I think that lack of clarity and understanding causes them to do a couple of things. And one is to continue to switch focus or try to buy their way out of a problem uh you know we see it a lot with serial entrepreneurs, and so you know getting that clarity and and just playing the game you're in really, really well, and being tenacious and persistent I mean, if I could stamp anything on my forehead, that's what they'd probably stamp. she was tenacious <laughs> um, and uh and and enjoy the process
0: enjoy the grass the, game. Is, yep.
1: the grass is not greener on the other side.
0: Well, and I think, yeah, you nailed it. And but that game usually has an end, right? So knowing yes. where that game and the end fit into your whole picture makes mm-hmm. that game even more focused. I would assume. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yep, definitely having an exit strategy in in any business that I've been in, whether I planned on executing it or not. You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I I, I like to think that I'm going to be in this business for the next twenty years. Well, I might change tomorrow, so I just want to set it up so I have choice. You
0: know, choices choice. and freedom, right? In mm-hmm. well, well, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, w- explain to the listeners what it is that you do now. Well,
1: I'll give you a couple of things. One is um, it's fairly recent, so don't judge it too harshly. But I've just launched um dot Awesome domain name. There's a, a website <laughs> there. We're getting that going. I have big plans for uh, that particular business, uh, but I am just you know the. BusinessSuccess.com seems bigger than me right now, but we're, I'll grow into it. I, like I said, I have a big mission for it. And there you will also find BusinessSuccess.com forward slash cafe is a weekly interview s- series that I've been running now for over four years. So I've done over 200 episodes and it's called the Business Success Cafe. It's 20 minutes of education each week and I call it the perfect coffee break for our business owners. So I'd love to have people come and join us there.
0: I love it. And I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with
1: you? Um, best way is to go to that site, businesssuccess.com, and all the information is there.
0: I love it. Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. You asked some really tough questions. That's so <laughs> <laughs> good. Well,
0: I enjoyed it very much. Thanks.
1: Okay, you're welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed the interview with Kathy. I had a blast talking to her, and I think she just did such a Fantastic job explaining all the different parts of her journey. And, you know, three of my main takeaways that I got from talking to Kathy was, you know, one being that an IPO goal really makes you start with the end in mind because of the goal of going public. So you have to do a lot of the stuff that we should be doing as entrepreneurs to your business to make it valuable and to do the things right because of the standards that are set in place. So she did a lot of things right from building out the sales force, getting the gold-plated clients, building the reoccurring revenue because of the end that she had in mind. And I think the second main takeaway that I got was, he who has the money wins. And I think it's a really good lesson because I think intuitively we all know that, but knowing that money and influence will dictate a lot of outcomes. So whether you're selling to a, a financial buyer a personal uh, investor, a competitor, or even going public, knowing that influence and money will really dictate the terms and conditions and how things pan out for you as the seller is really important because money can buy a lot of influence. And knowing the politics that goes into that, that you go from being a business owner, really focused on your clients and your industry to becoming almost a quasi-politician knowing that you're gonna to have to doing, be dealing with these battles is extremely important, regardless of who you're selling to. And I think the third main takeaway I got was that approaching business as a game. I, I loved how she worded this because I think all entrepreneurs, we do that anyways, but really articulating it and becoming aware of it, every game does have its ending and knowing what game you're playing will allow you to judge and put all the decisions that you're making into that context of the game And really sitting down with yourself and saying, what is it that dictates a successful win for this game, whether it's a dollar amount or legacy of your employees or whatever it is. And the game of business is in the grander game of life and making sure that those are in in balance or at least in a way that are a healthy relationship. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Kathy and until next week.